Welcome to another episode of Grief Talk. Everything you want to know about grief and more. I'm your host, Vaughn Solis. As an author, mentor, and bereaved mom since 2005, through guest interviews and coaching, here's where you'll always get great content that is inspiring and practical to help you heal after loss. Today's guest is Rachel Prey. Rachel is trained in Reiki at the master level and has over a decade of experience working in clinical settings with diverse populations in community mental health. She is a published poet and photographer, as well as an editor and creative consultant for writers. Rachel facilitates Reiki healing to horses and humans and brings Dharma wisdom to her counseling and energy sessions based on her Buddhist practice. Rachel also advocates for her LGBTQ community racial equality, peace, and economic justice, and is a contributor to the groundbreaking anthology Kiss Me Goodnight, written by women who lost their mothers when they were young. Okay, so welcome to the show, Rachel. I have been so excited to uh, speak with you about all the stuff we're going to talk about today. It's so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Bonham. Oh, yeah, so I'm so excited that we connected. For the audience, uh, Rachel and I connected on a networking uh, site where I do get, you know, have, have a lot of connections with guests, but um, I feel a, uh, feel and felt an immediate connection to you, Rachel, with your background, what you're currently doing and what you have to offer and uh, what you do have to offer my audience is, is, is jam-packed with stuff. So today we're going to be talking, audience, um, a little bit about what Rachel is doing now in her energy work, her Reiki, her wisdom uh, counseling. Um, the uh, Reiki, interestingly enough, uh, also equine, so for horses, as was mentioned in the introduction, we're going to talk a little bit about how Reiki can be used for animals. We're also going to be talking uh, about Rachel's experience with uh, grief and uh, identity loss and, and, and finding it again, uh, not only from the loss of her mom when she was 17, but also coming out um, queer when she was 20 in representation of any marginalized group wherever you're coming from, that just happens to be impacted by these issues. I myself was impacted greatly by my uh, identity, the only one I had as a bereaved mom, and uh, it can trap you. So we're going to be talking about that. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about her Buddhist practice and mindful living. And we're going to then um, share how you can uh, work with Rachel if you so uh, desire and what she's contributed to as a publication. We're going to get into all that right now. So Rachel, if you'd like to share with the audience what, you know, just explain a little bit more about what you are currently doing. And I'm always fascinated by what led you to do what you do. Yeah, it is. It's interesting, isn't it? How our paths kind of sometimes change over the course of a lifetime and what I'm doing now is very much informed by what I've done before, right? So I started off studying creative writing and literature and teaching literacy and that kind of thing. And I also taught some self-defense and some outdoor education. And then I moved into working with horses, which I'd done since I was very young, but I started to do it more professionally. And got involved with an organization that did therapy, not physical therapy with horses, but emotional therapy using horses as a kind of reflective tool for the nonverbal um, communication. It works incredibly well for people with certain kinds of trauma, especially PTSD. And so I did that for a long time. I um, worked with therapists 
and brought people into, you know, equine assisted learning and therapy sessions and learned a lot and got really interested in how I could do more. And then I went back to grad school and studied clinical psychology and started being more, you know, doing more conventional therapy. And all through that time, I've studied and practiced Buddhist meditation, starting in my mid to late 20s. And then just recently, you know, as happened for a lot of us during the pandemic, I was feeling kind of restless. I was training a horse, but not really working with people that much. And I got involved in this Reiki training. I, I met a teacher and we really connected and I started to, to practice it and, and learn. And now I went all the way through to my master level Reiki energy healing. And it feels like a really wonderful transition that incorporates a lot of my skills and training in clinical psychology with Buddhist meditation, working with horses. It all kind of comes together and I get to offer this this healing and this uh, and this counseling, this this I call it wisdom counseling because it's informed by Dharma, by Buddhist teaching. Yeah, I feel like I need to go out and buy a horse, move to California, and have you as my therapist. <laughs> oh my goodness! Riding horses was one of my passions, and I only have done it a handful of times. But I love horses, so you're like the whole package, and um, that's why it's, you're, you're such a special guest because you come from the conventional model of therapy. So for my audience. Um, Sometimes it's my concern that people who go into practice uh, as coaching and even sometimes counseling and, you know, their shingle doesn't have the academic, uh, the letters behind their name, that uh, the work isn't necessarily um, considered as valid. So trying to say what I'm trying to say is because you come from that world, you understand both and so it's a breath of fresh air for me to be able to pick your brain a little bit, because for those of us that go to conventional therapy for difficult things, and we, we get some help, but it, there's still gaps, because models of treatment of therapy don't necessarily reach some of the areas without lived experience, if you will, or even having a consciousness that's been expanded. And I think that's still quite missing, you know, in traditional conventional therapy. And I'm not knocking it, it has its place for sure. But I love it, love it, love it when I meet someone who's I say crossed over and is in the energy and stuff work, because it's, it's a complete different picture. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. I mean, there's a reason I'm no longer practicing conventional psychotherapy, right? And I really, really tried. I gave it my all, you know, and I, I really threw myself into learning and training and practicing. And I had some incredible teachers and wonderful supervisors and yeah. some amazing experiences in, in clinical training and in different community mental health organizations. And I miss a lot of it. But yeah. honestly, I had to find a way to offer what I felt that I had to give without having my spirit and my heart kind of feeling like it was being crushed or at least diminished mm. by the, the somewhat dysfunctional and limiting psychotherapeutic constraints. Um, there's, there's wonderful ethical values there that are incredibly important, and there are boundaries that are also very important. Mm. And at the same time, I was working within a model that felt, if I can use the word, um, patriarchal in, in the sense that it, it wasn't really honoring 
the full experience of what it means to be a human being and how many of us are marginalized and we experience things as a collective society, not just as individuals, right? So that kind of tendency to pathologize mental health issues as if it's an individual problem, or even, for example, to pathologize grief as an illness that needs to be cured rather than a human process that we all experience that's very much a part of of life. And really, there's nothing wrong with grieving. In fact, it's necessary and can be transformative. So does that answer your question? It does. And, and I want to really be clear, I am uh, not at all criticizing conventional anything, medicine, therapy, what I am saying is it's a breath of fresh air. And it's wonderful when you have both those worlds. Um, because if if you are practicing in conventional uh, medicine therapy, you from my experience, meeting a, f a few of those types of practitioners in my life, uh, personally, working with them, they, they can't really blend the two uh, if you're in that working in that conventional model. And um, so I think that world opens up a whole lot of stuff for us. And I'm really, really happy that it served a purpose for you. And you've built on that, no doubt. And probably I'm going to hope and say that some of those tools and things that you've learned in that model have served you well in the, in the one you're currently working in. Would you say that? Absolutely. I could not be doing what I'm doing now without all of the incredible training and experience that I've had as a therapist. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that experience. And I've been in therapy off and on for a lot of my life. And it's incredibly helpful. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with therapy. It's wonderful. And at this stage of my life at 58, it just became a little bit too constraining. And I needed yeah. to allow myself to explore what other ways I could offer as, as a healer and to accept that yes. that's who I am. And when I had worked with horses, that's really what I was doing. I was yeah. working as a healer and I, but I didn't feel that I had enough professional training at that point to really launch into my own work. So yeah, yeah it, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a blending, like you're saying, of, of various skills. Yeah, totally. So, um, so all therapists out there in the conventional model, we love you and we need you and audience. If you, uh, are blessed enough to actually seek some therapy for certain things, if you can get the help and it's help, uh, helping you work through a problem. Awesome. Uh, so you might be called to look for something a little bit more. My own work is in the divine. And so no, no human can help me on the planet learn the things I'm learning from the divine and have learned. Anyway, moving on, I want to just say and I want to acknowledge that one of your key messages, Rachel, is that grief is a natural and collective human experience, that healing is possible. We're going to be talking and focusing on that today. A lot of my own work is uh, centered around healing. But I also want to acknowledge the, the tough parts. And I do acknowledge the tough parts of uh, suffering uh, from whatever uh, brings us to our suffering. Uh, but I always like to stay focused on the fact that what we do with the tools that we learn and practices from different practitioners, books we read, people we meet, this uh, contributes in my uh in my experience and my view to uh, the bulk of our healing. It's obviously what we do with our stuff and how that comes to us. Um, I want to uh, ask you a little bit about the uh, loss of your mom when you were 17. I know you had another major life event as we're going to get to next when you were 20, but sticking just for the moment to the loss of your mom when you were 17, how did that impact you then? And uh, is it still impacting you today? 
I feel very much like a person who has lived my life without a mother. You know, I don't think that there's anything really quite as transformative as that experience in my life that I can point to. And it happened at such a crucial time developmentally in my adolescence. I was 16 when she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she died a year and a half later. It was, it was a pretty rapid process of the illness and she died at home, which was unusual back then, 1983. Um, and that was really wonderful in a lot of ways, but also very difficult to be a teenager. I was, I was, you know, I'm the only daughter. I have two brothers. And so I was in a kind of a caretaking role and. I was also trying to finish high school and apply to colleges and, you know, keep up my GPA and take my SATs and, and all of that was going on while my mother was dying at home. And it was really, you know, the, I think it's a human experience that many, many human beings have had, but not as many people in my particular situation at the time were having, right? Like I was living in a relatively privileged community and situation where I really didn't know anybody else who, at my age who had experienced death of the death of a parent at that at that time. And then eventually, you know, of course, it became more, I had more in common with people as we all got older. But so, yes, it transformed me in many ways. And one of the ways that it transformed me was I was really given a gift as painful as it was and, and remains very painful in a lot of ways. I was given the gift of experiencing life and death, right? I got to watch my mother die. And then I had to figure out how to live my life without the parent who really had raised me and nurtured me. My father wasn't really capable of doing much of that. So, and then I had to become a parent in a sense to my younger brother and really launch out into the world at a very young age. So I have an enormous amount of gratitude for the resilience and many of the gifts that, that that experience gave me. I have a very strong connection with my mother to this day. It has allowed me to understand that there's something there. There's a relationship there with a person who's died that is possible to, to continue. It's not the same as having them there alive and, and, and being there in your life, but there's some, there's some ability to, to continue that relationship beyond death. And that's been fascinating and interesting and can I just ask like does your mom actually have visits with you like were you blessed like I've had my daughter visit me over the years um well ever since she passed in 2005 although the, the visits got a little bit less frequent the less I needed her I guess right right and I always like to th say the the busier she got whatever she's doing you know it's sort of like yeah I don't really need to check on you but initially in those first few years there were physical manifestations of her presence, astral, mostly astral, telepathic, but lessons in it all. It has been such a gift for me. What's the connection with your mom being like with her in the afterlife? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I mean, it's, it's funny because I was brought up in a very scientific, very intellectual, academic environment, and we didn't talk much about anything like this. Um, but my mother said to me before she died, she said, I will come back to you if it's possible. Wow. You know, I mean, as a teenager, I was like, I, I don't even know how to process yeah. But yeah. yeah, it was touching, but it was, I was also just overwhelmed by everything that was going on. And I didn't know if she was even, if she even knew what she was saying, but she did. 
she came she came to me and she has she has come to me and sometimes it was a little bit scary and and uh, overwhelming and confusing when it first started to happen and now i'm just like oh hey mom like how you know how's it you know like not not that it's really like so direct a communication but i can feel that there's a presence there she's also communicated through other people my brother's had the experience of a friend of his from high school came to him later said by the way i have a message for you from your mother and i've had that experience too where like a partner has had a dream and said you know your mom just told me x y you know like and it's just it's really interesting and you know there's lots of different ways to interpret what that all means and we can look at it just psychologically or we can look at it as a larger continuum of human experience that we don't necessarily understand so it's so interesting because I'll just throw in a little aside here. So I uh, started working as an angel therapy practitioner in 2006. So that was all about, okay, working with the angels, channeling the angels and all that. So, okay, fast forward to 2015, 2015. So, you know, nine years later. So now I'm like, look at, I'm comfortable. I'm doing lots of channelings for clients. Nobody's doubting the results. I feel very drawn in September 2015 to go for a week to work with James von Prague. And for people who don't know James von Prague, he is a medium, internationally renowned. He's been around for decades. And, you know, is uh, he's a pretty cool guy. So a lot of people didn't even know why they were there that weekend. But the hundred, there were about 100 of us. And the whole thing was to be a vessel for you know, our loved ones in the afterlife that want to come through us and leave a message for their loved ones. So you either can do it or you can't do it. But most people there could. And some of them that, you know, the people that didn't know why they were there were some of the best mediums. Maybe it was just because they were so like not expecting anything. But here's the thing. So five days of going around different groups, different partners, whatever. We even did an exercise where the uh, sitter, you know, sat outside the room, door closed. And the group that was, you know, in in another room, myself part of, of this group, was, you know, we're getting messages. None of us said from who, it didn't matter. And then at the end, the person comes in and you give them all the messages. And we were all, all getting messages from the same person. It was so cool. So uh, you'll never convince me that there isn't ongoing consciousness and an afterlife. The only thing I'm not 100% sure about is what form it really is. And my daughter has basically taught me it's just energy and vibration. And they have to appear to us in some way if you're able to channel uh, or have astral visits. And they will appear to you in a way that you can make sense of it. And that's all I'm going to say. I have gone gone so far as to see my current, uh, some of my current family members when I first got into this stuff. Oh, you know, this was, well, I got into it 41 years ago, but this was about 35 years ago. Uh, I saw them as color and I knew exactly who they were. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that, I mean, that's my experience of it is there's an energetic quality. And in many cultures, in fact, in most human cultures, going back tens of thousands of years, there are traditions, shamanic traditions of people who have particular sensitivities who are able to kind of, you know, go into a trance or go into a deep meditative state and come back with information that's helpful from 
from ancestors, right? Or we, we reach out and ask for guidance from ancestors in all different kinds of spiritual traditions, including Buddhist practice. There's a big emphasis on uh, being in touch with ancestors, whether they're ancestral teachers from the Buddhist lineage yeah. or people who are actually related to you. And I've learned from this practice how to reach out and just express gratitude to ancestors and feel their presence in my life. And it's really very powerful. I mean, in, in Buddhism, they're called bodhisattvas or, or divas. Um, and there's, there's a really strong tradition of noticing and accepting and understanding and appreciating that we're not necessarily the only, the only beings in this moment, right? We, we're, we're surrounded by all different kinds of energetic life. And it's really quite wonderful. You know, outside of, of those viewpoints, we're kind of lagging and trusting what we can't see, uh, but we're getting there. Um, so I just want to jump on uh, really quickly. Um, you know, you mentioned to me when we chatted before that you felt like you'd had 40 years of mourning. So I did just want to expand on that just a little bit. I want to ask you for other people that might be feeling that way. And I, and by the way, audience, I don't want to feel like we've skimmed over Rachel's experience of losing her mom at at 17. It's a really complicated uh, subject and I'm not focusing on that here, but um, I have started to meet quite a few people who did lose their mom at younger ages. And my understanding is, and Rachel, you might be able to, um, confirm this, you know, that the most difficult loss is child loss. And the second most difficult is losing a parent when you're a young age. Uh, is that something you feel? I hesitate to rate the quality or severity of any loss. Yeah. Because every experience of grief is unique. And yeah. we all suffer in ways that are very human and very painful and can be also transformative. And I mean, I'm, I'm also a poet, I'm a writer. And one of the ways that I've, I've worked with some of this grief and, and just, you know, life <laughs> in general is to write poetry. And I, and my mother was a pianist, she was a musician and poetry is a little bit like music, right? So I feel that her musical qualities in some ways have passed down to me as poetry and one of my poems was published about 10 years ago in an anthology that was put together by two therapists uh and it, all of us contributors we were all women who lost our mothers when we were young young children through i think about 20 or 21 was the cutoff and i organized i helped to organize a couple of readings one in massachusetts one in los angeles we got together we read our contributions, many, many women showed up. It was on Mother's Day weekend. And there was such a strong sense of connection that I felt with the other women. I realized that I was in a very particular group yeah. of people who had experienced this particular form of loss. Yeah. It is a significant loss. Some people were close with their mothers, some were not. Some had complicated grief, some did not. Some ended up with loving stepmothers, some did not. But we all had in common that we lost that relationship before we had a chance to individuate and become adults and, and, and go out on into our, into our own lives. Yeah. And uh, the reason I say 40 years of mourning isn't that I've been sad and grieving and suffering every minute of every day of the last 40 years, but every stage of life that I've gone through, including high school graduation, which happened shortly after my mother died, college, college graduation, 
get, being in a significant relationship, getting married, but didn't have any rights at first, but we still had a wedding, um, becoming a parent, all of those experiences in life, I didn't have a mother to yeah. talk to, to ask advice from, to celebrate with, to fight with, you know what I mean? To Yes, I do. Right? And with with losing a child, you you lose, I mean, I can't speak to it, it hasn't happened to me, but I can imagine that you lose those milestones as well. Yes, you do. Yeah, just the opposite. Like my daughter would be 40 now, 40. And I think the biggest loss for me, I also want to say my mom is gone. She she uh, left in 2010. She was also a pianist. And um, I was also a poet. So there you go. We're very kindred that way. Uh, and I probably haven't grieved her loss. I'm going to be really honest about that because she died five years after my daughter and my dad died as well. And there was to be another death. But I, I, I was so consumed by the child loss that I literally don't think I've grieved my mom. Um, but at any rate, it is similar in the sense that uh, I, I, can, I can imagine. I love that you said I can imagine because most people would say I can't imagine. And I always say, yes, we can imagine. And because it's so scary, that's why we don't want to imagine it. But yeah, I've lost everything after age 22. And any any person, any parent that's lost their child at whatever age, they've lost everything after that point. I guess it, where it would feel similar somewhat is is at an age that they're going, because they're also presumably the parent dying at a younger age than is expected. We have the last photo. We have the last moment. We have our last action together. We may or may not have um, baggage and unresolved stuff. Most of us do. And with losing a daughter, of course you fight with your daughter. And then, of course, you feel horrible when they're not here anymore. And thank God my daughter and I did not end on the note of a fight, but we did end on me saying I wasn't going to help her with some money for the month. And yeah, I've lived with that one. So it doesn't matter what note we end on. What matters is it ends. And it really, yeah, it strips you. For me, it stripped me of my identity as a mom of two and a mom of a daughter and certainly of a happy family. And for you, I'll ask you, what did it strip you of with your identity? Because we're going to talk about identity loss. So, yes, exactly. You lose a sense of who you are in the world. I remember very strongly experiencing back then as a teenager, I don't know who I am without my mother. Like, I actually really felt that because I wasn't prepared. I hadn't lived out in the world as my own person yet. And she and I were going through some some conflict, you know, because I was a teenager. And at the same time, I was trying to separate and have my own life and go out into the world and go to college, but I still needed her a lot. And then I remember when I reached the age that she was sh when she died, she was 46. I remember looking at photos of her, you know, some of the photos that I had from back then. This was before digital photography, so I just had regular photographs. Yep. Wow, this is... I'm going to be older than her now. Like from now on, I'm going to be older than my mother ever was, right? And I don't have the wisdom of an elder. You know, I mean, there are other people in my life I could ask, but I didn't have the wisdom of a mother elder to say, and what was it like for you when you were, you know, this age? And what about, you know, menopause? And what about, you know, when, when my daughter was going through adolescence or, you know, some of the struggles she was going through? So just feeling that, 
that loss of that connection over time that it that informs my own sense of my identity as as a daughter as a mother of a daughter and then when i came out when i was 20 i didn't have the experience of being able to come out to my mother and say hey by the way you know this is who i am and my and and whether we you know, whatever, however that was going to go, I don't know, but I imagine she would have eventually been accepting, but we might have had some, some struggles around it. I didn't get to have that experience either. So in some ways, it was very freeing. And I remember saying this at the time when I came out in 1985, I remember being surrounded by people who were struggling for the most part with their families. And some of them, including my partner at the time, was disowned by her family. Wow. And I thought, I am so free to be who I am, to come out as a queer person because I have already lost my mother. I have nothing to lose in a sense, right? Yep. Freedom there. I was riding a motorcycle. Like I, I was in a sense doing what I needed and wanted to do for myself. There was some sense of freedom in that at the same time as there was the sadness. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I want to I want to say a couple of things uh, really quickly. So uh, for anyone who might be a bereaved parent or a bereaved uh, daughter, so everything that you lost uh, while you were talking about everything you didn't have from your mom that you lost, you know, uh, because of her death, I lose as a parent not being able to teach my daughter, and that I was feeling that so much when you were talking especially the menopause thing, but I was like, yeah, uh, it's like, yeah, I don't get to teach her that. Cause I mean, I have my son, but listen, I'm not probably going to teach him the same things. And, um, the other piece to that for me is what struck is when you said, well, wow, I'm now the age my mom died, or I'm now five years more, or I'm now way older, you know, etc. I'm aging. She's not here. And I kind of see that with my son a little bit, like he's 31. And, and it's like, I have to stop and remind myself, oh, yeah, but really, I've been a mom for 40 years. I've been a mom for 40 years, just because my son isn't 40 doesn't mean I still didn't have those other 10 years. And that's something I've lost too, is not being able to sort of publicly speak and claim that until my podcast. I did want to ask you, um, as we move on to your coming out at age 20, uh, do you think that, and have you experienced social and cultural influences that have restricted you, silenced you in, in your grief in any way, your healing? Like, I'm just wondering how you think of culture and society playing into your overall experience of everything you just talked about so far coming out losing your mom you know like all the things that that get packed into that yeah no that's a really good question um i mean i've lived through some very interesting times right yeah society politically i was born in the 60s 1965 and I remember as a really little kid, my parents didn't watch TV much. We had a tiny little black and white TV. But I remember they would watch the Watergate hearings, right? And they were involved in, you know, peripherally in some civil rights, you know, supporting organizations and candidates and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so when my mom died, it was at the very beginning of what came to be known as the AIDS epidemic, right? Yeah. In the early 80s. Yep. And so when I came out at that point, I had 
left the East Coast and I was living in California and I was close to San Francisco. I was going to UC Santa Cruz. And the quilt, the quilt that was created by Cleve Jones and contributed to by, by lots of people all over the country who had lost uh, loved ones to AIDS was traveling through Santa Cruz. And I volunteered to be a docent and I did that and I met people and then I eventually got involved in activism, um, and I was involved in ACT UP for a while, and I got to meet Cleve Jones, I got to meet Gilbert Baker, who created the Rainbow Flag, and I, I, at the same time as all of this kind of excitement and energy was happening, it was a lot about death. There was a lot of death and dying and loss, and the gay community, especially gay men, were really reckoning with how do we manage loss at this catastrophic level? We're losing partners, friends, and many of these men were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, quite young, like my mother had been. And I was 23, I guess at the time, 24. So there was a part of me, honestly, that felt quite comfortable in that environment mm -hmm. because I was a person who understood grieving at a very personal level. And a lot of people my age who I knew who were not gay men at the time did not have that experience and were maybe a little bit more scared or uncomfortable or unsure. And I just, I've, I kind of embraced it, honestly. I mean, I was on the periphery in a lot of ways because I wasn't centrally involved in, in that struggle, but I did feel a level of community because I think it allowed me to have a communal experience of grieving as I was coming out. So many of us were cut off by our families. I wasn't. I struggled with my dad somewhat, but he, he never cut me off. He never disowned me. My partner's family, it was very difficult for her and for us. And many, many people I knew at the time were experiencing that. So culturally, we were in an extremely homophobic time. We were in a time where we had no rights, where we gay and queer people were considered that there was something like deeply wrong with us. That's how we were treated, that there was something so wrong with us that we shouldn't even be allowed to exist. And that was extremely painful and difficult to live through and also made me strong and more determined than ever to support the people around me who maybe didn't have the, the privileges that I had. And I felt that I had no choice but to speak out. And that's what I did. I love what you're saying, Rachel, and although our um, circumstances are different, feeling marginalized and, um, well, obviously in, in your world, uh, there is pure bias and prejudice and so on. Um, I experienced that. I don't know if I told you this. My daughter was half West Indian, so she experienced a lot of racism, and that hurt me a lot. And so in my life feeling marginalized just to contribute to the conversation um, for anybody that might feel marginalized in another way. There are many groups that we fit into that make us feel marginalized. Grief is for sure one from certain losses, not all, but certain. Um, I was a single parent at a time my daughter was born in 83. <laughs> it's kind of like if you're a single parent, something's wrong with you. Like, you know, actually, here's a story. She got pneumonia when she was uh, two you know, I was working, so I wasn't able to stay home with her all the time at that at that point. So she was in daycare. I picked her up. So something was drastically wrong. Uh, took her to the hospital and turned out she had pneumonia. So she was in for five days and recovered. But the first thing they did, sent a social worker to me. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 
So there's a lot of stigma in the 80s, being a single mom, for example, having a mixed child, for example. She was actually born in a little uh, Catholic hospital, and um, I could hear the nurses, you know, uh, what did they say? Uh, I wonder, you know, like basically what uh, island the dad is from. Something, I don't know, just something. I mean, it's just whatever. So it, it's like I went through all that kind of stuff. And so what I'm trying to say here is it doesn't matter where we feel marginalized, where it comes from. Um there is a, a pain and, and can be a suffering to that. But what you said was so ear catching for me, which is community. And you found your community and community is so important. And you found your voice. And so yay for that. And I think sometimes we need to find our voice more than once, depending on how our life unfolds. And um, I used to have a pretty powerful voice long ago. Uh, my daughter died. I felt absolutely deflated and vulnerable and um, invisible. I just found my voice through this podcast. Um, I might have had some of a voice as an author, but as a podcaster, it's this is why I'm doing what I'm doing is to actually speak and say these things out loud. And it is so freeing. So community is really important um, if you can find one that feels right, we go through these things together. We are not alone. So thank you for mentioning that, Rachel. One of the things I did just want to uh, touch on briefly, when you were going through this period of coming out at age 20, and you do identify, I want to admit, I feel a bit funny saying the word queer. Um, uh, I think it was you or somebody else actually that's coming on the show that also identifies as queer. Help me understand what queer means. I wonder, actually, Rachel, um, would you be willing to just help the audience understand what queer really means? <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a word that's been used differently at, in different times and different yeah. places. And it means different things to different people. Part of the reason why I say queer now, when I talk about myself and my coming out is it's, it's sort of genderless. Um, and I like that. Uh, when I came, I was come out as a lesbian. I, I was a, a woman, a female identified person in a relationship with a woman, and I was a lesbian. And when people would yell dyke at me in a negative way, I thought that's a cool word. And I, I looked it up and I did some research and I found out what where it had originated and I really liked it. And so then I would call myself a dyke. But then there's in certain situations in which when you say, hi, I'm a dyke, like that isn't necessarily the, the easiest way to introduce yourself. And sometimes made people uncomfortable. And then over time, you know, I began to understand that I'm not just, uh, and also I don't say I'm gay because gay in my experience growing up and coming out was a word that was used for men, for gay men. And it just uh, never really resonated for me. So yeah. um, the word queer, you know, it means different, right? It means you're different, a little strange, a little special, a little unique, that it has lots of different meanings. Um, and for a long time, we would call our, maybe call ourselves part of a queer community, right? Rather than saying the letters that people say now. Yeah. So part of the queer community. So I like that it has an inclusiveness. Um, and as I, as I got older and I kind of looked around at how certain words and labels and identities were being used, I realized, well, I'm also a gender nonconforming person. You know, I mean, I, I've always been someone who doesn't look and act stereotypically female, whatever that means, but, you know, the female socialization that was expected of girls who were born when I was born, I pushed back against that because I was athletic and rode horses and, you know, had a lot of brothers and 
friends who were boys and I wanted to do all those adventurous and active things. Not that girls shouldn't do that, but it wasn't as accepted as, fem- as being a female trait, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I embrace that I am in a female body and I'm a, I'm a woman. And at the same time, I'm something else, right? Some people maybe would call it non-binary now. I don't really identify with those words, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of something, you know, third gender, whatever you want to call it. In other cultures, it's called two spirit. Um, there's lots of different ways that, that other cultures identify this quality of having some combination of male and female trait, right? I like that, but I would never, you know, I can't call myself too spirit because I didn't grow up in those, in those cultures, in those communities. But that's why I use the word queer. Thank you for just for explaining that, Rachel. I actually, listen, I was a tomboy as a kid. And uh, I was a skinny little thing. I did not give thought to femininity until my 50s probably my late 50s, I was 53 before I even got my nails done. Because I'm a spiritualist, gender doesn't play into it for me. So I don't think about anything other than we're all equal, we're all, you know, this oneness of of spirit. And so I think it's kind of interesting how we've made it such a cultural thing over the decades. But anyway, we're not really talking about that. But I did just times we're living in where there's a lot of focus on identity and words and all of that. Yeah. Community, there's a tradition of reclaiming words that have been used against us. And that's the other reason I use queer and dyke, because I, I give them back the power and the positivity that they have and take away the power of somebody to use that against me. Yeah, uh, There's a wonderful book by Judy Gron called Another Mother Tongue that I think has been reprinted several times. She did amazing research on the origin of some of these words. And it's really, it's really powerful and very healing to read. Yeah. And I really am appreciative that you mentioned that um, because it helps destigmatize us as people when we get tagged with stuff. I want to move a little bit into your Buddhist practice, why they contemplate death and how could we contemplate death in this crazy Western culture of ours? I mean, Buddhism, I think when I first started reading and studying and learning about Buddhism when I was in college, I was very drawn to the aspect of the teachings that focuses on death in a in a way that's so different than the culture that I'd grown up in. Mm-hmm. There was no uh, taboo about death in Buddhist uh, teachings. Death is talked about a lot, and death is considered a part of life. It's considered to be something that we should think about and pay attention to and honor and contemplate, you know, often daily. And Buddha actually took his followers to the trial grounds and they would sit and contemplate the, the bodies decaying and learn to just experience the whatever comes up, whatever comes up for us, fear, aversion, to allow those feelings to come up without turning away and to understand that this is part of life. This is a natural cycle of life and death. And there's, there's an arising and there's a passing away. You know, everything is impermanent. So every moment is impermanent. And 
this life, it's very precious. Uh, life is life is short. You know, there's a saying in, in Buddhist practice, what will you do with your one precious life? Mm-hmm. And I really, really resonated with those teachings, even as I as I got older, even even more so, that contemplating death, and especially in a communal sense with others, there's a practice in Buddhism called Muranasati, which is the contemplation of death, and there's a whole sort of series of exercises that you can go through in community with others to really face the reality of death and face those fears that come up and embrace the the gratitude that arises and the ability to be very present, fully present and aware in each moment because you you know with every fiber of your being that you are going to die and that every person and every being in your life that you love will pass away in some form from from your life. And then there's this incredible life energy that flows in when we allow ourselves to accept the reality of death because there's that preciousness of life. Yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. There's no order to death, folks. And again, you spoke about community. And uh, I'm just going to say in contemplating it for yourself, uh, even uh, in terms of for your loved ones, we're very open about it in my very small family. And we, we talk about it, not necessarily all the time, but enough that everybody knows where the wills are, what you want done, you know, how much money you want to invest in, in the, you know, sending off and so on and so forth. And, and we don't talk about it quite like as if we're preparing a shopping list, but we talk about it openly and honor it. And I truly believe that when it is our time to go, I truly believe we are in tune with that. And if we have this enlightenment for sure, we will not fear our passing. Hopefully will be very beautiful. Thank you for that. Like, really, thank you for that. The other thing, we're coming now to the top of the hour, uh, Rachel, and um, I did just want to ask if you had any uh, last thoughts. Your key message really is about grief being natural and it's a collective human experience. You also spoke about that Reiki and Buddhist meditation uh, can bring supportive energy into your daily life and help with this. Are there a couple of tips that you could maybe leave the audience with that they could, you know, if they're not going to turn to a full-fledged Buddhist practice or even as a as a meditation practitioner, are there a couple of things that people could do to sort of center themselves uh, if they are in grief, if they do feel marginalized, to feel more empowered? Well, one of the things I loved when I started uh studying and practicing the Reiki energy healing is how powerful it is to feel that life energy. It's really accessible and nobody owns it. You know, you don't have to have credentials to experience Reiki. You you need to be present and aware and settled in your body and in your mind. And this this energy that's that's there all the time you can really feel it, and it's very healing. It's very powerful, and and one of the things I did just instinctively when my mom was dying was I put my hands on her body, you know, and and I've done it for years with horses, where you horses are very sensitive beings and very energetically sensitive, and I I would put my hands on their body to help calm them. And Reiki is is a very ancient form of of putting hands on bodies to heal. Right? It's the same with 
meditation. When I talk about, when I was a therapist, I talked about this with my client. And as a wisdom counselor, the same thing. You can get in touch with that very quickly just with your breath. You settle your mind and your nervous system quite effectively. It's a grounding practice. You can feel everything becoming still. You can feel that life energy. You can feel a sense of relief from anxiety and stress and fear by practicing being fully present in the moment. And your breath is really the, the place to start with that. And when you're talking about breath, so being present and breathing, is there a certain rhythm to the breath that they should be doing? There are some practices that emphasize counting the breath, and that can work particularly well if you're in quite a lot of distress, if you're in a high level of ner nervous system dysregulation, if you're having a panic attack, that kind of thing, then sometimes counting the breath helps. Some people find paying attention to the breath is not helpful when they're feeling hypervigilant or having a panic attack. So there's other grounding exercises to start with before you come to the breath. My, my practice, the way I was trained, a Buddhist teacher from Vietnam, was to just notice the breath mm -hmm. and just notice if it's short or if it's a long breath, notice if it's an in-breath or an out-breath, and just allow for whatever's happening. But what that does is it actually shifts the part of your brain, your amygdala, it shifts the, the energy from the part of your brain that's in fight or flight to the prefrontal cortex that's related to your mirror neurons and your attachment. And I mean, there's a whole, there's a lot of research on, you know, neuroplasticity, but it helps to train your mind, your neural pathways to not be in reactivity. And it's it's really quite powerful in a very short amount of time. It's easy to learn. Yeah, I love that. So be still, audience, if you can take moments throughout the day and be still. I was being still there while you were speaking. And I'm very calm right now. Very calm. And, and I, I, so in, in motion, I mean, if you're a person like me who doesn't sit still very easily, you can do it when you're walking. Even when you're washing dishes, you can do it when you're driving. You just Notice your breath. Oh, there it is. Rachel, I'm going to uh, close this off. There is a publication that Rachel has contributed to uh, called Kiss Me Goodnight, uh, stories and poems by women who uh, were girls when their mom died. So if that is your experience, there uh, will be a link in the description to that. Uh, in terms of uh, how people can contact you, whether they want Reiki for themselves or Reiki for their horse, uh, how can they reach you, uh, Rachel? So the wonderful thing about Reiki is I can do it in person, but I can also do it remotely. It's an energy that can be incredibly helpful, even if you're not physically there. So uh, if people want to reach me for Reiki for themselves, for their dogs, for their cats, and especially for their horses, because I have, you know, over 50 years of experience working with horses, uh, my website's called Reiki Plus Wisdom, and the, uh, the website is Reiki wisdom.space www.reikiwisdom.space and uh, that's the best way to reach me um, email is rachel at reikiwisdom.space and I would be more than happy to talk to you about what your needs are and whether you want Reiki for yourself or your animals or both and counseling to learn how to be more present oh that's amazing so uh did we cover everything you wanted to speak about, Rachel? A lot. I mean, I would just say that the one thing I didn't really get to mention 
was how grateful I am to have had horses in my life. Okay. I'm, I was seven years old and just that I got to be around these amazing beings who are very sensitive and are that, that I learned from being around horses that there's this whole nonverbal communication that's possible with animals. And so I learned a lot about body language and I also learned a lot about um, being aware of my own body and kind of self-regulation because horses will respond to nervous energy and to calm energy and to body language and and that has just been so incredibly valuable to me in my life in every single aspect of my life as a parent as a as an activist as a buddhist as a teacher as a therapist i learned so much from horses and i just i hope for others that they can experience this in some way whether with horses or with other animals because we as human beings are not meant to be around only other human beings. We're meant to live closely with animals and and to learn from them. And you can look at the at the research, at the at the science of this. Our minds are actually designed to to calm and to process trauma partly through proximity with animals. That is that is how our minds process trauma. Yeah, I love, love, love that. I miss my animals. Um, uh, just on closing, I made the decision with my husband in 2020 January, we lost our last animal. I have had animals all my life, but um, I needed to sort of look after me. And so I miss them. But um, every chance I get to be around one, uh, you bet that I, I take whatever cuddles and unconditional love from them that I can because it does help my healing for sure. Rachel, thank you so much for being on my show. It was an absolute, absolute pleasure to have you here. And I'm so grateful to have met you. Thank you, Vaughn. It's an honor. Your podcast is wonderful. The work you're doing is so important. You're helping so many people. And I feel like we could talk for many more hours. So I look forward to, to future conversations. And thank you to the listeners as well. Absolutely. Thank you, audience, uh, whether you're watching or listening. And thank you again, Rachel.